Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and trying to complete. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Uh, doing pretty good, Joe. How are you doing? Pretty good. Sounds like you got a train coming through. Uh, yeah, it's perfect timing. Yeah. Um, I feel slightly attacked by the trying to complete opening line, <laughs> but I, I think we're both in that position right now. That's mostly directed at me. <laughs> Just I resemble that remark. So what's going on? Well, uh, I've got a little bit of follow-up. Um, okay. Last week, I expressed that a uh, third-party uh, C-sharp development environment had kind of popped on my radar the sufficient number of times that I was going to have to just take the plunge and dig into it and see how it was. Uh, it's called Rider from JetBrains. And for my purposes, I'm basically going to be comparing it to Visual Studio for Mac. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of Visual Studio for Windows, but I don't actually have a lot of problems with it. So that's not really what I'm trying to replace. Um, the first piece is that it's got this weird descending price to it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the first year, it's $139 a year, but the second year, it's $111 a year, and the third year, it's $89 a year. Okay. Like, I like where they're getting to, but they've got to now carefully track the exact ages of things, and having done things with renewal prices and such with FM Perception, it just... I'm sure there are people in their support department that just hate this. Yeah. From what I know about economics, prices always go down over time. Right. That's always the way things work. So that makes total sense that that would happen. <laughs> yeah. I'm also trying to, to imagine working for like a large corporation and then trying to explain this pricing structure to a purchasing manager. Yeah, I wonder if there's like some kind of enterprise level opt out. Just give us a regular price checkbox. So in general, what it kind of looks like they've done is they've made kind of sort of their own Visual Studio code. Mm -hmm. And instead of just having a plugin for every language that you want to work in, they've got a splinter version of their development environment, which at first glance sounds like a really bad idea. Why would you bother? But for that, they're not sticking with exactly the same interface. They can mimic other you know, key commands and override all of those things. So when I open it, they're like, hey, which of these things are you moving from so we can remap all of your key commands to be just like that? Hmm. I'm like, huh. Um, which I suppose at some level you can probably do with Visual Studio Code, but I, I don't know. There are, there are times when I'm working with code that an application context shift makes sense for me when I'm doing a language context shift. Mm -hmm. And there are other times when that is not the case. So if I'm working on a lot of web stuff. I'm kind of used to going, okay, this is JavaScript, this is HTML, this is CSS, here's some XML. Like, I don't, I don't, I mean, this weird amorphous 
all languages are awesome zone. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like I definitely, when I do web direct or web direct, when I do web development, I use Atom and sometimes TextMate. And when I do anything else nowadays, it's Xcode. And it's really easy to mode shift because those are totally different mm-hmm. muscle memory and key command memory and just, they work very, very differently. Yeah. And so even though they've got like 30 or 40 different apps, um, that pricing structure applies to all the apps, but you can get the whole collection for like 250 bucks. So as soon as you use a second one, it just makes sense to get the whole batch. So uh, not particularly punitive as far as that goes. Buy two, get 38 free. (laughs) So first, uh, the good stuff. Uh, Pretty decent interface. There's a lot of little buttons. I mean, I'm okay with the small buttons, but there's a lot of them. And the good side to that is there's a lot of really cool features that it has. The bad side is, wow, that's a lot of small buttons. Are they like plain icon symbols with no text below them um they yes they have some color and they've got nice tool tips when you mouse over them but they are not you know i mean there's just no room for putting labels next to these buttons they're small um in a lot of the operations that i was trying to do it was faster than visual studio um in in particular, in things like uh, build or compile, launch app, run test, quit app, edit code, you know that that cycle there. It just pulled a couple of seconds out of it, and you know the stuff that I'm doing right now takes four or five seconds to build. Well, if that goes down to three, that's a huge improvement. But I have no idea what it's going to do with something that takes three minutes to build. Hmm. Um, It seemed to resolve that not updating in time issue that I had previously Hmm. that had me kind of looking at this stuff where I'd update some other source code and the IDE wouldn't quite recognize that some of my identifiers had changed. Though it's possible that some of the work that I've done procedurally or process-wise fix that anyway. And we'll be talking about that later. Uh, Probably one of the coolest features is it seems to be non-destructive to the file formats. So basically I can use both. As a matter of fact, this morning I was. I was running it in Rider. And then found a feature that I really wanted that I couldn't find in Rider, but I knew exactly where it was in Visual Studio. So I just closed the project in Rider, opened it in Visual Studio, and it was perfectly happy. The nice part about the version control that I'm running is if launching Rider and building my app had made any changes to my code, I'd know about it. Mm -hmm. So even all the little settings and things like that, none of that changed. Um, And then they've got a, a... long free trial their free trials 30 days so lots of time to figure out whether you like it um on the bad side the key commands are atrocious 
I I mean, like Command F is find, but getting to find and replace is like Command Option U. Huh. Like just they'd already used Command Shift F for something else or Command Option F for something else, and just just went weird spots. And so sometimes I'm looking for the key commands to be like every other app, which is kind of the Visual Studio Code pattern. Or it will be like just straight up Visual Studio, and sometimes there are things that don't fit in either. Mm-hmm. Just I'm spending a lot more time mousing through the interface than I want to, but that's something that I can spend some more time on. Um. Because I've been doing all the work with unit tests, uh, Visual Studio has a really nice feature to allow you to just rerun a single test. Run this test. I figure it's got to be there somewhere, but I still can't figure out how to run a single test in Rider. Mm-hmm. I can run batches and groups and whatever, but not just running one. My biggest current problem is... Um, the console log isn't outputting Unicode. Hmm. <laughs> the biggest problem. So here's the thing. If I write, if I build a nice little structure to some of my logging statements, so I get nice divider lines between the sections and I'm using M dashes to make that happen, in the event log, those show up as question marks. Hmm. All Unicode symbols are just question marks. Now, at this stage, with what I'm working on right this second, that's actually not a problem. However, (laughs) the larger project and then the the down-the-lines projects are all about parsing Unicode XML. (laughs) If I can't output what I'm having a problem with to the log and get useful logging statements, no good. Yeah. Now, I dug around online and found, you know, there's tons of discussion things. It seems to be a a popular platform. Found the modifications you're supposed to make to make this work. And for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to work on the Mac. That leads into my next issue is their support seems to be a little iffy. Hmm. By the end of last Monday, I had sent in a support request going, hey, what's up with this? I got an automated response back and since then, nothing. Which, for a paid application, not great. And I had a weird little... It wasn't quite a crash, but it was one of the weirder spinning app problems I've ever had. Where, like, 0% of the machine's processor was being consumed, but every app on the machine was beachballed until I killed this app. Oh, fun. But it didn't appear to be the memory issue. I don't know, maybe there's a memory leak in there somewhere, but... It was, it had been sitting there idle for eight hours. Not a huge problem, but, um, yeah. And then there's so many settings and options that even the built-in setting search engine is not going to find what you want. (laughs) You need Google to find a thing to literally change anything. Like, Mm. you're not going to find the option that you want just looking for it never yeah. gonna happen even going through categories not gonna be there that's how i felt about visual studio on windows 
There's so many options. Yeah. So um, I'm going to give it a little bit more time. Hope that I get a support request back, but we'll see. So with that then, got into um, kind of my main project update. Um, and I, I have about 80% of the code written for supporting the let statement now. So let was one of my two big outstanding ones, let and while. And, uh, I talked last week about how I kind of wanted to roll some of the code back to one of its broken states to figure out what the heck, what, what API was being generated. Mm-hmm. And I decided that rather than rolling back, because that just feels bad, I would roll forward and just start working on let, but do it the way that seems obvious to me, but which I now know is wrong, or even as of then knew was wrong. Hmm. So I did it the wrong way all over again, which gets me right back to the broken state. But now I can hit compile and I've already done a whole bunch of framework and built unit tests for it and things like that. So... um yeah, it turned out to be hugely helpful. It's weird in that trying to go through documentation for how somebody is supposed to work with Antler is there's a there's a line beyond which help documentation becomes really unhelpful. <laughs> and it's because you aren't by the time I'm using it to try and parse a calculation I'm not using the Antler API. I'm using an API that Antler built for me using my naming conventions. Hmm. Which means if I name things funny, my my answers will look different from every other application on, on the planet that tries to do the same thing. And so finding this line and then using that opportunity to dig into actually go look at the source code for the API that it automatedly generated for me answered a bunch of questions. Um, there were a couple of things that I was using wrong. There was a thing in there that I didn't even realize was there or didn't realize what it was doing. Um, and so that was great. And I figured out how to handle the kind of branching paths. I had said last week that once you had kind of two ways to get there, the API fell apart. And now that I've looked at what's being generated, I understand why what I was trying to do wasn't working. And it's things like, um, <clears throat> let's say that I have a parser entity that's a parameter just for any function this function takes three parameters this function takes two parameters um if i just say the replace function either has three i'm sorry substitute either has three parameters or it has one parameter and then groups of two parameters the code that they generate for me just goes, okay, here's an array of parameters. Gish. I don't, I don't know what, but everything that you're talking about here is all about parameters. So that's what we're going to expose to you. And that's all you get. 
and trying to get in there and like understand the grouping and going, well, these two parameters go together and these two parameters go together. It isn't set up to handle that kind of fluidly. The cool part is you can set it up. And so I can, instead of saying it's just parameters, I can say, I can make an entity that is a pair of parameters. And so my option is there is substitute open paren param and then parameter pair. <laughs> or in square brackets, parameter pair, parameter pair, parameter pair. And so now I can say, okay, give me the third pair. And it will bring back the pair and then I can decompose that into nicely named chunks. And so rather than trying to be really elegant in the way that I structure some of this parser stuff where I'm trying to like be really expressive and like get down to the root of it, you know, just a list of parameters, it makes sense to actually tear this thing out further. So I was writing parser rules for the let statement that all fit in one line. And when I looked at it, it made sense. And the new version is four or five lines long. And if you didn't have any idea what a let function was, this would confuse you even more. <laughs> but if you know how Antler thinks about problems, A, it's really clear, it decomposes really well. But this is another one of those like, oh, okay, now I understand what I'm doing. Shoot. Shoot. Yeah. So that was fun. But it does make it, it's a different way of being very expressive. And then the cool part here is I'm actually at this point not concerned about the while function anymore. Hmm. Because let, the, the ones that have the, the, the brackets, the bracket notation, they have alternate large complex alternate paths. You can do it with the brackets or without the brackets. And that was leading me to go, well, there's kind of two structures here. Well, the problem is the while statement is the only one that I know of that actually has two separate areas where you can use the brackets. And so my old way of doing it, I was going to end up with like four separate paths. Kind of binary. Well, no brackets. First section bracket, second section, no bracket. Then second section bracket, first section, no bracket, and then bracket bracket. Well, that's terrible. <laughs> really, really didn't want to do that. And now that I've got this better understanding of this stuff, I can basically do that in one relatively short rule that just calls out to other rules for the specifics of how it fits together. Um, this all sounds great. It was humongous amounts of beating my head against a wall. Very, very frustrating. Doing a lot of restructuring things. Um, I found... I had this concept that a calculation as a whole was... So, so you had a calculation, but it broke up into small expressions. And those expressions were basically connected via operators. So maybe I'm concatenating two or three things, or I'm adding two or three things. And exactly what the operator was wasn't important, but it was 
a sequence of expressions separated by um, operators. And so I was using this expression concept all over the place. And I realized that I had screwed that up. <laughs> and the problem is that, if you think about it, expressions are the little units that are connected by operators. And for all intents and purposes, operators don't exist inside expressions. Okay, they're, they're in calculations. So calculations are stringing those together. But if you just throw in a substitute command, that's just an expression. This is my nomenclature. Mm -hmm. I was just trying to break down how these ideas go. And the problem that I ran into is that um, the parameters for, say, the substitute function aren't expressions. They're actually full calculations. Oh, it's like a little mini calculation engine if you think about it this way inside each of those parameters they're basically independent of everything else that happens in the calculation except for scope related variables so i can calculate this parameter calculate this parameter calculate this parameter and then pass the whole thing to the main function See, now this makes sense as to why FileMaker wouldn't give you that document that you asked for. <laughs> because they're deeply ashamed. <laughs> I, You know, I had this idea in my head that if I had the spec for how their parser works, that this would have been a lot easier. And I'm now pretty sure that that wouldn't have been the case. <laughs> that may have made it even more complicated. It, it may have. It, it may have answered a couple of questions along the way, but I'm pretty sure this would still be a pain in the butt. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So you're done with it? No. No, I'm just kidding. But so I, that was, you I said, am you said far that was, closer than I've been. So you said that was 80% of the let. Can I assume that was the easy part and the 20% no. is the hard part? No. The last remaining part is... There's special coding. So once I've built this rule, I then have to add in some visual noise that handles white space. Um, so in most languages, white space is not important. If I, if, you know, variable names can't have spaces in them. So if I have three parameters and I put two spaces around each parameter, you know, between the commas and such like that, and really space the thing out, when you run it through the compiler, the first thing that it does is throw away all those spaces. They're completely inconsequential to the functioning of the program or the figuring out what variables are being talked to or what functions are being called. And so there's just some basic functionality in Antler to just go, yeah, kill all the spacing. Problem is, I need all the spacing. At least initially. I have to separately identify spacing which is important versus spacing which is not important. Because I can name a field, you know, my space field. Mm -hmm. The space in the middle there is important. Can't get rid of it. If I say my field space ampersand space the other field, 
the spaces around the ampersand are not important. And so, anyway, I've figured out how to fairly cleanly express it. So all I have to do is um, add some, it's basically just some visual noise. But I don't bother doing that at first. So I have to add the visual white space handling and then write another set of unit tests that are basically the unit tests that I already have, but with lots of spacing around everything. <laughs> it's adding in all the possible extraneous spacing and formatting and making sure that the thing still parses properly. You know, if I insert a tab or a return in the middle of this A equals B expression, is it still going to parse? So far in general it does, but right this second... The let hasn't had that. So then after that, it'll be do the while, add the while spacing. And that part of the project will be done. Freaking finally. I actually, even that's not true. After that, well, that's when I can start getting into more complex testing. Mm -hmm. Like I haven't done a lot of testing so far with 50 line let calculations. Because I was having problem with three-line let calculations. <laughs> There's no point in building unit tests for something that horrifying. But this will be when I'll finally have an opportunity to pull in those terrible, terrible calculations that our friends provided. <laughs> the worst of the worst calculations to make sure that it's still parsing properly. So, yeah. But that's when the fun starts again. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are you working on? So I've been basically just plugging away at the user interface. Um, it's been pretty much the focus for the last couple of weeks since I got the foundation kind of set where I want it to be. So this week, I mentioned last week that I was having a lot of trouble with the event list view and just trying to figure out how I want it to look. And... Over a couple of days, I finally settled into what I think I want, at least for now. Um, this may change farther down the road in future versions, but I think to get something out there, I think this is good enough. So there's a link in the show notes, and I sent you this link in our show document. Uh, there's a blog post with some screenshots if the listeners want to follow along, but I wanted to have you look at them and let me know what you think as well. So... Not too much has changed on the timeline side. So most of this discussion is around the lists of events. And the biggest change, there was some screenshots that I posted in the early part of last week where I went through kind of a series of iterations trying to break that list view into something more appealing. And after that, I made some more changes to it over the weekend. And I've kind of settled with this format with the event title on top and then kind of a dynamic section that would show any notes if there are notes followed by the date string. So how long ago was it? And then the bottom row is a series of little kind of attributes for the event. So if it's a favorite, the, the star will show up there. If it's got a start date, the start date will show up there in a little capsule if it's a date range. Both of the dates will show up there and the selected one for the row will be in the capsule. And then on 
some of the versions of the list view where you're showing data from multiple timelines, a timeline capsule will show up there as well. So if you look at the screenshots on the website or the blog post, that first one is basically just the list of timelines and then I tapped into the test milestone. And that is pretty much what it looks like with a couple of different types of event rows. The, the biggest difference between this and previous versions is there is no detail row anymore. And I got rid of the navigation link that just taps over into a full screen edit mode and instead went back to editing these in a modal. So that's part of the reason why I'm trying to show so much in the list view. And then if you want to edit it, you can go into the modal to edit it. Um, looking at this screenshot, I got a small comment if I can hop in. Mm -hmm. um, there's an opportunity here, and maybe this is just a way future thing, for a little bit of polishing on that date string. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if zero days should just say today. Yeah, I've got to do some stuff like that. That's on my list. Um, and the ongoing, I'm tempted to add so far. Mm, you don't get any more feedback about ongoing. Okay. <laughs> you, you've got so many problems. <laughs> I'm cut off. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. Please proceed. So yeah, th there's there's a whole checklist of tiny little things like that I need to do. Okay. Um, so the next one is the same list view, only now it's being used for three of the top level reports. So there's one for ongoing events, one for favorites, and one for all events. I haven't done the queries for the other two yet, like the on this day and perspective views that are a bit more complicated. Um, so the only difference between this layout or these three layouts and the previous one is you can see the timeline capsule in the row. And on the phone, it just shows up in a new row, but on the iPad, it'll show up in the same row with it just further out to the side so it doesn't take up as much vertical space cool and then the the cool thing about those layouts is they work exactly the same way as the previous ones so you can still edit those directly you can add new ones there you do have to pick a timeline when you add a new one as opposed to having it auto filled for you on the regular list views but other than that it's all Pretty functional. Um, the next series is just kind of a workflow from going from timelines, clicking on the test milestone, and then opening the edit view. And the edit view, like I mentioned, it's back in the modal now, and I cleaned it up quite a bit as well. So I got rid of a lot of the sections around the data. Um, let me open one here on my phone while I'm talking through this. So the, like the event type row used to be its own table view section with a label above it and a very wide segment of controller. Now that it's all been put into one row, the date or the date start and the end date pickers are now single rows as well. And the uh, little toggle for ongoing will show up right below the end date. And then when you select it, it kind of eats the end date above it and just moves up. It's a really nice animation that I didn't have to do anything to get. So, <laughs> Free animations are awesome. Yeah. So the last two sets of screenshots have to do with this layout as well. 
I needed a way to add a timeline picker. So one, when you make a, an event is not stuck to the same timeline forever. If you want to consolidate them, you can move them around. But also for those report views, if you want to add a row, you need to be able to pick a timeline. So there was definitely, I initially thought I can just use a regular Swift UI picker and just populate it with a list of timelines. But I immediately found myself wanting to be able to keep some of my data in the archive, but still be able to add data to it. And we'll get into that. It's kind of a bigger discussion for why, how I'm using the archive. But I needed a more advanced picker. So I basically built a, a list view that uses the same type of code that the regular timelines do. It's backed by a fish result controller, so it can do the automatic sectioning. It doesn't really have any features other than you tap on a row to select it, and then it just kind of unwinds the navigation for you. So you tap on the miles, the uh, timeline row on the form, it's, it navigates over. You can pick another one, tapping any one of them or the back button just takes you back. That timeline picker looks really slick, Joe. Thank you. That took most of yesterday. <laughs> Finally yeah. got it working. And then the other new control is the notes field. And this is just a limitation of Swift UI. There is no Swift UI equivalent of a UI text view like there is in UI kit. So the Okay. Yeah. So the regular text <laughs> the text field element in Swift UI is a single line thing. You can't type a paragraph of something in that and be able to see it. You can't add a carriage return to it. Like it's just it's made for collecting single values. And they didn't ship anything else. So I Spent some time this morning basically just stack overflowing the problem and trying different solutions until I found one that works and then been modifying it. But this is basically a, a UI representable wrapper around a UI text view with a bunch of stuff that I don't quite understand yet. I need to spend some more time making sure I understand how to use this thing. But basically it's it's using some stuff in combine and a coordinator design pattern to basically kind of simulate everything that UI kit would expect to be done on a view controller level with a, a text view, but there is no view controller to do any of this on. So you, Swift UI has this wrapper called a UI representable. They also have a UI view controller representable for the more full blown ones. And Basically, this gives me a way of wrapping that entire control into something that can be called from Swift UI. And I had some I had some different approaches with this one. The way it's set up now is when you go to the edit form, you can see a big white or black box for the notes, but that's not interactable. There's a little edit button right next to it that needs to be bigger right now. Right now it's really tiny, but that will segue over to a screen where you can enter the notes. And I need to add some some labels there, maybe a done button or a save button, something like that. But the reason I did it that way is because having that notes field on that form wasn't moving the key. Like when you tap into it, the keyboard would keep over uh, overlapping the text view. And I found 
a couple of different techniques to try to adjust your layout in Swift UI to compensate for the placement of the keyboard, but it was pretty buggy. It was the animations were slow and choppy. And as soon as I threw the text view into the mix, like if it, when I was just doing it with text fields, it worked pretty well. But when I threw the text view in, it got even more complicated. So I decided for now, like this is not ideal, but I think it's nice to have a, a big area to write as much text as you want. And then this can be scrollable as needed because there's nothing else on the layout. So when the keyboard shows, the keyboard's just blocking the last part of this control, but I can put the entire thing in a scroll view, so it doesn't matter. You can just scroll up and down as you need to. I don't think that people are going to be writing paragraphs or pages worth of text in here. Um, that's definitely not what it's intended for, but there isn't, I mean, there's no limit on it that I'm placing on it other than the limits of what text views can do in UIKit. Very yeah. cool. So yeah, it's, that was most of this morning just kind of banging my head on the desk, but it is good enough. <laughs> That's definitely the uh, the theme of development right now. Let's, let's use slightly better language for that. It uh, meets your current requirements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it'll have to do until Swift UI advances a little bit. I have a feeling that if I get this app out relatively quickly, then I can start spending more time polishing some of these individual things that bother me. But I'm not sure it's a good use of my time to make the best notes ent entering feature because I've, I'm guessing very few people <laughs> will use it. Like, like it's something that I want there, but not. Yeah. Like there are other areas to spend my time. There's also that's a really likely candidate for being fixed in a soon future version of Swift UI. Mm -hmm. Like if there are things you're like, I really hope that they'll do this someday and maybe someday they'll do it. But having the ability to have a chunk of text on a Swift UI view, probably somewhere relatively high up the list. Yeah, I would hope I so. I wouldn't anticipate you have to having to wait until Swift UI four for that to become a built-in feature. Mm. It's possible. I just don't think it's likely. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> so, in terms of what I'm going to do this week, um, I need to go back to work on the timeline list and the timeline archive. So I mentioned le this last week and how I put together a really simple implementation of it and that implementation works but i started uncovering some issues with it particularly when running on the ipad the way that i'm handling the data especially with the context uh, yeah the context menu when you like tap and hold on a cell and select the archive from there that crashes on the ipad and at first i thought it was something that i was doing but then i kind of went through it with the debugger and it's actually kind of a side effect of the fact that I have the view controller, I have multiple view controllers on screen accessing the same data. And when I'm updating the data in one, the other one's refreshing at the wrong time in its life cycle. And you end up with inconsistent numbers of rows in a table view section. And so if you are, or UIKit doesn't know how to handle that and crashes. So I need to, like I figured out this was happening 
because it wasn't happening on the phone. It was happening on the iPad. And I could kind of step through it in the two different scenarios and see exactly where it was happening. So I think a lot of this is to do with my that, that first page of the app where it says retrospective and has those five sections at the top. That whole view has a lot of custom stuff going on and it's built in a kind of a weird way where there's a hard-coded section at the top, a dynamic section in the middle, and then another hard-coded section at the end that shows up dynamically based on a query. So I need to streamline those into more of a traditional uh, dynamic section-based list so that I, I can do a query in core data, get the results back into section data, and spit them out on screen. And then that top section, I think, just needs to be a separate control. And I, th I think I can do them as separate items in the same list and just concatenate them together. But that needs to that needs some help as well. Um, this is stuff that I'm not going to do yet, but that whole top section needs to eventually turn into items that you can go into edit mode and check or uncheck them to show them in this list. So if you don't want to see the all events list on your dashboard, you should be able to get rid of it. That's not happening anytime soon, but that's definitely something I want to do. And then the, the things I need to do right now are focusing on getting the data in and out of the archive in a consistent way that doesn't crash, but is also an intuitive way for the user to do that. <clears throat> so I think what I'm going to do right now, when you load the app, there's just a, a new cell at the bottom that says archive timelines that navigates to another list where you can unarchive stuff. I think that's going to have to be combined back in with the main, the main timeline list. And then maybe I can make that section collapsible. So it's just collapsed by default and then you can show it when you need it. And the, the main reason I'm even spending this much time on the archive is because of how I want to use the archive. And basically I'm, I'm using this as a placeholder for the custom queries that I want. But when I look at on this day or all events or ongoing or favorites, there are certain things that I want to track in the app, but I don't want to show up in those lists. And I'm using the archive as kind of a filter for that right now. So like my podcast log, you know, every episode of a podcast I've ever done is in that, but I don't need that to show up in all these report views. That's just kind of an interesting bit of data I like to keep track of. Um, but it doesn't need to show up like that. Same thing with like my device log. I've got a lot, a growing list of every computer I've owned for the last 10 years and the date range that I used it and stuff like that. But that doesn't necessarily need to show up in on this day. Like I don't need to get a notification like on this day you got rid of your iPad mini first generation. Like it's not, not useful information in the same way that other stuff is. So. This is almost another one of those textbook examples of I've got this really simple idea for an app. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this should be pretty easy, right? Yeah. yeah, I can I can knock this out in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, you can probably see it in one of the screenshots, but we're coming up on six months that I've been working on this. Yeah, if you look under all events, the uh, there's an entry for retrospective timelines. I've been working on this on and off since May 20th. So... Yeah. So this week will be all about the archiving and fixing those list views. And 
then I also wanted to quickly follow up. I, I finally got feedback from Apple about the TSI that I opened. And basically, they had nothing useful to say. One of the issues that I reported, they said that's expected behavior. So specifically, portrait mode on an iPad, you're not supposed to be able to navigate back from a detail to a master list. That's expected behavior. So if you have an app and you're a user on the iPad, they don't want you to ever leave the record that you're looking at. You should rotate the device and tap on a different row and then rotate it back. That's what these psychos are basically shipping. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I have hard feelings about it. No, no, of course not. And then the other item they referred, I mentioned my feedback ticket when the guy was asking for more information and he used that up as an opportunity of like, oh, well, there's a feedback ticket. We don't have anything to do with those. So I'm shutting this down. So the whole navigation buttons uh, kind of becoming buggy after you're closing a, a modal view, that's a known issue. They've got my ticket for it. They've got dozens of others. They know about it. They haven't fixed it. And that's basically what he said. So What's a feedback ticket? Feedback is what they used to call radar. When you file a radar, now you file a feedback. Okay. It's the same. It's the same okay. black hole of despair that it's always yes. been. With, with a new name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> same awful experience. Great new name. See ya. Lovely. So that's what I've been working on this week. I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely narrowing in on getting things done there were several times last week where i thought of something that i could do like this is going to require a schema change and i don't need it so i managed to stay away from that type of stuff so i'm just kind of at this point knocking through the to-do list working out some bugs trying to make this thing more usable definitely need to work on performance those those list views with the dynamic um capsules showing up that is, we can, maybe we can talk about that next week, but that is a lot of code. Like that one list view where you can see all events, there's more code running on that screen than the rest of the project combined just to build those list rows. <laughs> so that needs some optimization. But there's just so many conditions to check and yeah, I need to work on that. Anyway, that's what I'll be doing this week. Sounds like fun. So uh, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. And if you like our show or like us, you should go and leave a review for us on iTunes or Overcast or Pocket Cast or whatever podcast app you use and uh, share the podcast with your friends. And uh, yeah, keep listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>